You are listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 9th of February 2023 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I am Marcus Hippi. Coming up on today's programme, Pakistan holds emergency talks with the IMF to avoid economic collapse. But has the government been able to unlock crucial international funding? Also ahead, Russia ramps up its charm offensive in West Africa. We'll look at Sergei Lavrov's recent trip to Mali and beyond. Plus the latest business headlines with our editor David Hodari. And it's Thursday, which means Fernando Augusto Pacheco is here to take a look at the charts. Hello, Fernando. Ni hao, Marcus. Today we're looking at the Chinese pop charts. More from Fernando a bit later. All that's coming up right here on The Briefing with me, Marcus Hippi. We start today in Pakistan. The country's government is holding last-minute talks with the International Monetary Fund to secure the help it needs to survive a deepening economic crisis. Pakistan has all but emptied its foreign exchange reserves. For more on this, I'm joined by Samira Shackle, journalist and author of Karachi Vice, Life and Death in a Contested City. Samira, welcome to the briefing. Could you first bring us up to speed with the latest? Um, yeah, so Pakistan's been mired in an economic crisis for for years now. It's kind of um, reached these points of of crescendo and crisis, and and sort of slightly died down when there's more foreign money forthcoming. Um, but the the current situation, um, the really crucial issue, is a foreign currency reserve crisis. So Pakistan is literally running out of dollars. Uh, the country currently has enough dollars to cover less than a month of imports at normal levels. It's struggling to service uh, sky high levels of debt. We've got inflation soaring to over 27%, which is the highest since the 70s. And, you know, this has a real immediate effect. There are factories closing because they literally just don't have dollars to pay for the goods they need. Um, And on top of all of this, the the devastating floods last year that left a third of the country underwater uh, have caused approximately 16 billions worth of damage, including devastating agricultural land and livestock, which is in turn fed inflation as the, the cost of basic goods like onion and wheat has, has skyrocketed. So it's really crisis upon crisis uh, and a set of really devastating circumstances last year, adding to the long running economic instability that, that's been a feature um, of, of Pakistani politics. Can you tell us more about what has led to this situation, the country running out of foreign exchange reserves? Uh, yeah, sure. So it's always been um, it's been a problem for for quite some time. There's been this sort of dance of going back and forth, um, back and forth to the IMF. Uh, so when Imran Khan um, came into power in 2018, he actually came into power promising to sort out the economy and not to go to the IMF because, of course, um, while Pakistan needs this injection of foreign cash, and right now very urgently, it comes with its own difficulties. Um, there's often a, a set of um, restrictive policies and restructuring and so on, uh, which Pakistan, an already poor country, a uh, country with a lot of political instability and weak state institutions, has been reluctant or or not fully able to do. Um, Imran Khan had to back down on that and seek IMF help. Um uh, so he did negotiate uh, a, a couple of years ago a six billion dollar rescue bailout to address uh, the balance of payment uh, foreign foreign currency crisis. 
Um, and the, the current issue is around the next tranche. That's the next tranche of a billion dollars, which was due in November. Um, but the new government, which came in after Khan was ousted in April, they're just stuck in negotiations with the IMF. So it's been um, discussions going on uh, back and forth, back and forth. Uh, about the kind of restructuring um, that would need to be done, because I think that the IMF position is um, that the problems won't in Pakistan won't be solved without massive restructuring, um, and thus far that that just hasn't happened. And I think from the Pakistani government's perspective, it's a very febrile political climate, and an election has to happen at some point this year. They haven't set a, a particular date yet, but it has to be in 2023. So it's quite a difficult. Um, it's a difficult thing to sell um, economic cutbacks to a population that's already desperately, desperately struggling in the aftermath of the floods and, and after years of, of inflation and economic crisis. Can you tell us how this this very difficult economic situation is reflected in people's lives? Uh, I think there's there's it exists for a long time. There've been shortages of electricity, um, load shedding, which is planned power cuts and so on, but that's really accelerated. Um, there's a uh, huge and growing food poverty uh, in terms of like I mentioned earlier about the impact of of both the, the aftermath of the floods and inflation on the cost of food. Uh, Pakistan actually imports a lot of its food, so there's an immediate impact uh, there for ordinary people with just um, basic foodstuffs being in lower supply and more expensive because the imports are so expensive. Uh, factories closing, uh, which has a terrible impact on people. You know, a lot of people who work in factories will be paid uh, as day labourers, um, day workers, so people losing income. Uh, and it's not just factories either. It's all sorts of um, retail manufacturing and so on being affected by not, not being able to get um, basic goods, products, materials into the country. Um, that's just having immediate and growing knock-on effects on household incomes and basic ability to for people to feed their families and, and pay their bills. A team by the IMF has been in Pakistan for over a week and is due to leave today. Do we know if there has been any success in finding solutions? Uh, it's hard to say. The, the Pakistani government said that the IMF is giving the, the finance minister a hard time and I think that's about as much information as we have. I think there is, um, I think, a sense in Pakistan that that a deal needs to be reached. Um, and I think probably from, the, I'm speculating here, but from the IMF perspective, there's probably a concern that that what's happened in the past is they they give the bailout, the government might make certain promises about the, the policies and restructuring and plans and so on that they'll agree to. And then because Pakistan is such a febrile political climate, you've got um, parties and leaders being ousted left, right and centre and the, the military is a, a kind of holding lots of the strings of power and so on, that those plans then get chucked out of the window as soon as there's a, a change in governance. Uh, and we do have this election coming and traditionally in elections, politicians offer subsidies to voters. And that's, you know, because a lot of people really are struggling uh, and an easy way to for, for politicians to to kind of garner support. You saw it in some quite ridiculous ways in Imran Khan's party at one point promising free laptops to every young person in the city and things like that. Um, but, you know, on a, on a more um, basic level, you might have people offers of um, subsidies for fuel or, or food or so on. And so I think the IMF concern will be there is this election coming and, and, how can they trust in what promises are made? 
Samir, are you optimistic at all that Pakistan could get its economic situation in order? I think that the... I think that there doesn't seem to be at the moment the the capacity or willingness to do the sort of long term change. And I think that's while because the country is so unstable and the state institutions are so weak, it's very difficult to do uh, the kind of long term change that would stop this dance back and forth to the IMF and back and forth from from the brink of absolute economic collapse and back again. Um, I think so in the long term, I'm, I'm not super optimistic at the moment. I think in the short term that probably some money will be unlocked. That's my sense. Um, and of course, Pakistan um, has the benefit of, of friendly allies in Saudi Arabia and the UAE and China who have uh, in the past in difficult times helped Pakistan out through um, through investment, through delaying repayments on on oil or rolling over debts and so on and i think if that imf money is unlocked then then some of that um other support might follow and but that that would be a, a sort of continuation of the pattern that we've seen over the last decade at least where it sort of comes to a huge crisis point there's an injection of cash we come back from the brink but the long term work doesn't happen and then we go back to the brink again and i think we might see that continue for some time. Thank you for your insights, Samira. That was the journalist and author Samira Shackle. And now here is Monaco's Carlotta Rebello with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Marcus. Nearly 16,000 people are now known to have died following two huge earthquakes that struck Turkey and Syria this week. Without shelter, water, fuel or electricity, the World Health Organization fears many survivors could yet lose their lives. North Korea has shown its largest display ever of intercontinental ballistic missiles during a nighttime parade, hinting at a new solid fuel weapon. Leader Kim Jong-un was seen at the midnight ceremony with his young daughter Kim Joo-a elevated to his side. Her appearance has fueled speculation she's being positioned as the successor. And Paraguay's president, Mario Abdo, will visit Taiwan next week as the island seeks to shore up ties with one of its oldest allies. Paraguay is one of only 14 countries to have formal diplomatic relations with Taipei. The visit comes ahead of an election in April that could see Paraguay ditch Taipei in favour of Beijing. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Marcus. Thank you very much, Carlotta. Concerns have been growing over Russia's increasing influence in Africa after Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov's visit to Mali this week. Speaking in Bamako, Lavrov promised help to West African nations fighting armed groups. Critics, however, say that the operatives Moscow has so, so far brought to Africa are often members of the Wagner Group, a private Russian military group that has been deployed in Ukraine and Syria. Joining me for more is Paul Melly, consulting fellow at the House Africa program. Welcome to the program. Good afternoon. Paul, could you first tell us more about what exactly is happening? What does Russia want to achieve by offering support to West African nations? Well, I think Russia's goal has really moved forward. When Russia first started getting heavily involved or heavily re-involved in Africa, remember the Cold in the Cold War uh, decades ago, Russia had many uh, close allies in the African continent, and then over two or three decades, that situation changed radically. But in the last three or four years, Russia is back. But its goal, first of all, was, if you like, almost an irritation one, one to sort of destabilize um, the patterns of support and uh, alliance and partnership that had been built up by the West, particularly by France, the European Union, 
in uh, Central and West Africa. And we saw that, first of all, in the Central African Republic, whose uh, government is very fragile, faced lots of rebels, and the Russians arranged for the deployment of Wagner, who used pretty ruthless tactics in helping the government extend its area of control. But now in the west of the continent, in the Sahel, we're seeing a slightly more ambitious agenda, where Russia, in a sense, is presenting itself as the partner who can do the military stuff that perhaps the French and the other Europeans are reluctant to do because uh, Wagner operatives notoriously are not constrained by the same sort of human rights uh, uh, concerns and uh, they're willing, therefore, in, in very tense situations where you've got lots of community factors at play, sometimes to play hardball. And uh, we've seen the UN accusing, uh, um, essentially, Wagner of being involved with operations where uh, civilians have been massacred, for example, in Mali. But for the government with a very sort of tough security agenda, they, they may not be bothered about that. What do you expect will happen next? Do these West African nations have any concerns over accepting assistance from Russia? Well, not the countries who've so far sought support or accepted support, because in Mali, there was a military coup in 2020, a second coup in 2021, where essentially the leader now in charge, Asimi Goita, has tried to strike out on a much more independent path, not just breaking with France, whose troops have pulled out along with other Europeans, but also distancing himself from the rest of ECOWAS, the sort of West African equivalent of the European Union. And now we've seen a, a similar coup in Burkina Faso. There are rumors that the Burkina government is in discussions with Russia about bringing in Wagner too. And again, Burkina has asked the French to leave just a few days ago. So for Russia, this is opening up. It's moving from the nuisance game, if you like, to a chance to play a more strategic game where it's presenting itself as a partner of influence for those countries that face security crisis and are somehow unsatisfied with uh, the support uh, that, if you like, the Western establishment can put in play. And this is also politically difficult because for most West African governments are coping already with a lot of popular grassroots disillusion with elected leaders, with the standard political establishment, the political class. And so... ECOWAS as, as that establishment, if you like, when it's trying to put pressure on Mali and Burkina to return to constitutional rule, now it's finding that those countries may get support from Russia and be able to stand up against, uh, against the pressure from ECOWAS to some and have a greater control over the pace of whether or not they cooperate with the return of civilian rule. But we've got a final interesting development yesterday. Um, Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, was in Nouakchott, the capital of Mauritania. Now, that's a country that doesn't fall into this category. Mm -hmm. It's a country with an elected government, much more orthodox. And he was trying to make the case to them that even in a country like that, Russia could be a useful partner. What is Russia's big plan over here? Is it just the principle of trying to gain more influence wherever you can? Or could Russia benefit immediately from, from having allies in Western Africa? 
I don't think the economic benefits are very great because Russian companies are already, for example, involved in gold mining. That was uh, possible even before. After all, West Africa is looking for investors, Russians, along with the Canadians, Australians, etc., etc., are present. But what Russia can get is diplomatic influence. And at the time of the Ukraine crisis, uh, we saw, for example, that African votes in those key UN votes to condemn or not condemn Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the African voice was split. And uh, there are a number of countries that abstained. Only, only one country, I think, Eritrea, actually supported Russia. But a lot of countries uh, didn't turn up for the vote or abstained. And uh, we've seen that this is, again, it plays into the fact that there's a lot of popular disillusion, if you like, particularly in the cities in Western Africa, with the traditional partnerships with the West, and particularly a lot of popular anger against France, one of the key partners, and of course, a former colonial power. And so... Um, for Russia, this is a chance to build some diplomatic influence and, of course, re-establish itself as a player uh, internationally so that at a time when, which wasn't true, of course, during the Cold War, at a time when China is now the big alternative counterbalancing power to the US and in economic terms, Europe, uh, if, you, if you like, Russia, Russia doesn't have those same advantages. But here in the African continent, it's able to carve out some diplomatic support. And over there in the African continent, we are seeing competition over influence. The Chinese are there increasingly. We are seeing Russia working hard to get more influence. And obviously also Europe and, and the US are trying to do something as well. How do you think the situation will evolve and how much actually is at stake over here? Well, I think we have to make a very sharp distinction between those countries that are under military rule, which is only a very small number, and which are diplomatically isolated to some extent, even from their neighbours. And they are turning to Russia for what you might call urgent support. And there is certainly a case to be made that um, Mali, for example, will become more dependent on Russia. And in the Central African Republic, it's said that uh, the the president now is very heavily reliant on Russian intelligence. But those are the minority. On the other hand, you have a lot of mainstream African countries that are very much in the sort of normal diplomatic framework, maintain very good relations with the West, with the US, with France, with the European Union. And for them, the relationship will be much more like the way they cultivate the relationship with China. That is to say, China's useful for some things. The Chinese are very good at building dams, railway lines, container ports, that kind of stuff. But when you want long-term budget aid, when you want long-term trade agreements, assistance with those unglamorous but really very important long-term social development goals like uh, expanding access to education, managing environmental crisis and that kind of thing, they very often will prefer to maintain the relationships with Europe particularly for that and with the US. So they're, they're, there's pick and choose. At Chatham House, for example, we did a recent report on China's role in Africa. And it was very interesting in Cote d'Ivoire, which is one of the strongest economies in the continent with high growth rates, lots of resources. The Ivorians, they traditionally had a lot of project relationships with the French, 
for big capital projects, engineering and so on. Now they've got similar relationships with China and on rather similar terms. So they're, they're taking support and financing from all the different partners who can provide it. How concerned should the US and European nations be and why? Well, I think in in economic terms, probably in terms of the relationships vis-a-vis China, China's part of the picture. The Chinese involvement is actually rather complementary, as I was explaining, to the role played, uh, the types of assistance and partnership uh, that Western economies, Western governments can provide. In the case of Russia, it's more complicating because one of the one of the problems is even if you set aside the sort of Cold War sort of dominant domino theory obsession with ideology about does it matter whether Russia is influential in Mali or not, there's a practical side. Uh, Wagner operatives may not actually be very effective in restoring underlying peace and stability. It's one thing to support a national army and take a very hard line in certain military situations. But underlying all this is that there's a huge crisis of development, of rebuilding community relations, that kind of thing. And uh, this sort of tough tough military approach isn't always the most effective and that's that's where there's a challenge because west africa is a region that's absolutely pivotal for europe it's its population is increasing rapidly it's still quite poor it's still quite underdeveloped it's almost next door to europe and so for the european governments it's in the interest of everybody it's in the interests of west africa and of europe that west africa should succeed and grow and be prosperous and stable and it's not very clear that the russian type of assistance is going to assist that process whereas the chinese involvement provided the debt obligations to China are managed carefully, is actually rather complementary. And China isn't posing a military or political challenge. It's, it's, it's working with the grain of the established partnerships. Paul Manny, thank you very much for joining us today. It's 12.22 here in London. You are listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. Monocle's February issue celebrates places that work providing a roll call of appealing outposts that will inspire and encourage you for the new year ahead. From a top transport system to a seemly city hall or cultural HQ. Elsewhere in the issue, we meet the perky Brazilian coffee company that has crossed to Europe with ease and visit the car plant in Morocco that's revving up the nation's commitment to renewables. And then, as usual, there are reviews of the best hotels, restaurants and travel hotspots to pack your diary with throughout 2023. Order your copy of Monocle's February issue today or subscribe to get instant access online. You are back with the briefing on Monocle 24. I am Marcus Hippi. We continue next with the day's biggest business news. Joining me in the studio is Monocle's business editor, David Hodari. Welcome to the program, David. Let's start with big news from Disney. The company is going to cut thousands of jobs. What's the latest we know? So the latest we know is that um, Bob Iger, who was the previous and now current CEO of Disney, uh, he's returned in the last few months and he held this monster earnings call uh, this week uh, in which he sort of announced his plans to arrest a 40% 
decline in the company's share price uh, since uh, the since its peak in 2021. He's laying off 7,000 employees. He's cutting five and a half billion dollars in uh, in spending. He wants to build an avatar attraction at Disneyland, and that's just for starters. Okay, how, how, avatar attraction in, in Disneyland. What else is going to happen in terms of the customer experience? How do the customers of Disney notice that something is changing and the company is getting rid of 7,000 jobs? So, uh, in many ways, a lot of the announcements that he made this week are reversals of his predecessor, Bob Chapek, who uh, who took over from him a few years ago. Uh, part of that is to reverse this focus on what's called a cradle-to-grave uh, content approach from Disney. So in recent years, people who've been subscribing to Disney Plus may have seen uh, shows like The Kardashians or The Bear, which I personally enjoyed as about, a sh- as about an aggressive chef, <laughs> in short. Um, uh that that focus is going to be is going to be downplayed. Disney's now going to be focusing on its core offerings, so franchises like Star Wars, Marvel, Pixar, its parks, as with that uh, Avatar attraction that I mentioned, and also its ESPN uh, subsidiary. The market reaction then, then just quickly, how positive has it been so far? Well, the market reaction's been quite positive. Uh, I think shares are up in pre, pre-trading activity this morning. Let's continue then with news from, from Volvo. The car maker is in talks with some of the world's biggest mining companies over possible stakes in lithium mining operations. Why? Well, why, why indeed? So Volvo is, in doing this, joining a, an auto industry-wide a race to secure minerals and metals needed to power electric vehicles. And it might be a misnomer to think of uh, electric vehicles as being entirely uh, environmentally friendly and uh, internal combustion engine vehicles as being entirely environmentally da- uh, damaging. And while EVs do uh, emit less uh, harmful, polluting toxins, um, emissions, um, the mining of the rare earth metals that go into electric vehicle batteries can be quite damaging. So um, it's interesting to see Volvo getting involved with this. It's a necessary evil in the car industry right now, uh, and that's probably what they'd argue. Monocle's David Hadari there with the day's top business news. Thank you very much. It's 12.26 here in London. You are listening to Monocle 24. And finally on today's programme, it wouldn't be a Thursday without Monaco's very own Fernando Agustabashoko taking us through the global countdown. Once again, we're heading to a country somewhere to look at which songs are doing well in the charts. Fernando, where are we going to today? We're going to China, Marcus. And what I find fascinating about the Chinese music market, there are very few of them that actually manage to be successful in other countries. So although it's a big market, of course, everything in China is big their film industry, music industry. I think a lot of people will not know those names. So, you know, it's quite an interesting top five here. A lot of grandiose, like epic songs almost. I'm trying to hint that the songs are not particularly enjoyable today. No, no, absolutely not. I think there are actually some beautiful voices in there. uh, And perhaps our listeners might discover a few few songs as well. Okay, number five. Number five, it's uh, by Shen Tang. And the song's called Goodbye Deep Sea. It's actually the soundtrack of a beautiful animation film. 
I say beautiful, I haven't seen the film, but I've seen the trailer and it looks amazing. It's quite, uh, you know, a dreamy type of vibes about a young girl uh, where she's abandoned by her mother, but then she goes on a cruise and then suddenly she's in this dreamy underwater uh, world. It looks a bit mad in a way, but shall we have a listen to the song, Marcus? Let's do it. <laughs> 留下你，像梦的出口，别回头，尽管往前走，就算终点没有人为你等候，我会在另一个时空，化作自由的清风，也请你要忘记我。Is Sean Tang going to end up on Monaco 24's playlist, Fernando? Well, I'm not sure, but I have to say I don't hate it. You know, I think it's quite a beautiful voice there as well. And and we see this throughout the countdown, Marcus. In fact, our number four artist here, he's known in China for his ethereal voice. He can sing so, even like a soprano at times as well. It is very uh, dreamy. I mean, I would say he's got the perfect voice, if I may say that, if, if you're just looking at the, you know, on how people sing. And this is also the soundtrack of a film The Wandering Earth 2, which I think you wrote about in the Monaco Minute, which is doing very well at the Chinese box mm-hmm, office. Indeed. A sci-fi classic. Uh, let's have a listen. This is Zhou Shen with Ren Shi. Let's have a listen. <laughs> Huge emotions. What was this song about? Very emotional. It's about being human. And I think it's it's related to this film Wandering Earth, which is about, you know, the sun's light is, is going down and people have to go to the universe. I mean, I have no idea about the story about because it's really a confusing sci-fi film, but it's about what makes us human. Fernando, I wonder if you have if you can make any more sense of the following tracks. My briefing notes say teens in times. Teens in times, or as they are known better, as TNT. Basically that's China's version of BTS, if I may say. Probably they wouldn't be too happy for me saying this. Uh, but yes, they are the most popular boy band uh, at the moment in China. And even big brands, they want to actually work with them. Uh, Louis Vuitton most recently, uh, they did a partnership with the band. So they were, uh, you know, performing uh, for Louis Vuitton there. It's it's quite funky. I, I kind of like it. Uh, let's have a listen. TNT with Starry Night. <laughs> For the playlist, maybe, Marcus? Maybe. I quite enjoyed it. Fernando, quick quiz question. How many members does this band have? You know what? I believe it's seven, Marcus. You actually got it right. Ooh, yeah. Thank you. I'm glad. 
I was a bit scared of this question, but anyway. What's next? Uh, well, next, it's also a soundtrack, this time not for a film, of a TV series. The TV series is called Meet Yourself. It's the story of a, a city woman. She loses her, actually it's quite sad, uh, she loses her best friend through cancer. So she decided to move to a small rural, rural village uh, in China and, and, you know, remake her life there. So again, it's very beautiful, very poetic track that we're going to listen uh, by one of the most popular Chinese singers of the moment as well. It's Yi Yu to a place where the wind blows. Very pleasant. Very pleasant. And even the lyrics. I mean, I have, for example, one line here. Listen to the rain falling into the silent forest. So it's all about nature, to hear the, the raindrops and feel connected to nature. Yeah, I think it's beautiful. And now the exciting moment. What's number one in China this week? Guess who's back? Uh, is Zhu Shan. He was also a number four, but he's also a number one. And remember, Marcus, what I was telling about this connection with nature. I mean, look at this track. It's called Blooming and Worrying. So there Blooming is and worrying, you know. Worrying. I don't actually, I, I, you know, that's what the translation said to me. So I wonder if there's the contrast of happiness and sadness as well. Mm. But let's have a listen. He's the man who is known to have the perfect voice. So, Fernando, would you describe this song blooming or worrying? Perhaps a little bit more blooming, maybe. I have a feeling look, when you look at me here, you're, you're worrying a little bit, Marcus. But again, look at, look at the lyrics. I bought flowers at the alley, the sunset slowly kissing my hair. Oh, so romantic. I think you liked the Chinese top five this week, didn't you? I am pleasantly surprised. I mean, I agree, for our place, it might be a bit hard. I mean, we don't play that many ballads. But number three, TNT, perhaps? Who knows? Who knows? Fernando Augusto Pacheco, thank you very much. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Carla Rebello. Our researcher was Andre Nikolai Pamintuan. And our studio manager was Kelly McLean. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time at midday here in London, 7am in Washington, D.C. I am Marcus Hippi. Goodbye and thanks for listening.